If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I think we, everyone was really surprised that he was who he was. I don't remember being anything but, but relieved that they had identified him. And, and I wasn't so sure that it was him, you know, because, because when it started to come out that they had arrested him for something else and then kind of tied him back to this. It kind of felt like maybe they were just doing that to close the case, make people feel better. You know what I mean? It was kind of hard to believe. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick, and I'm sitting with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And today is part two of our three-parter about the Gainesville Ripper. So if you haven't listened to last week, go and listen because it won't make any sense. And if you are a binger, you got to wait one more week so you can listen to this all in succession and have you know a very fascinating three hours of your life. So before we get into it... Um, I looked at the days today. Bill. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know you did, because today is January 12th, and it's International Kiss a Ginger Day. Oh. oh. This isn't even the one that I was looking at. Oh, really? That one is fantastic, and I will give Jared many smooches, and I hope everybody finds the ginger in their life and kisses them. I'm, I'm guessing that it was the Feast of Fabulous <laughs> Wild Men Day. Yes. I want to know what that one's about. Billy, go click on it and I, read I, the description. I'm on it, yeah. So... What can a day called Feast of Fabulous Wild Men be about? As far as we can tell, it is a day for feasting one's eyes on hunky, good-looking men. (laughs) Men who are both fabulous, being classy and refined, and wild, being unrestrained, rugged, Mm. and free. There Mm. should be no shame in staring today because it's a holiday. (laughs) You just have to make a donation to be able to make up your own day because that's like scraping the bottom of the barrel. I'm obsessed with it. And they said, besides feasting your eyes on men you see every day, you could also celebrate the day by attending a Chippendale show. It seems like Chippendales might have, you know. If you aren't able to get to one, this. you could always look at pictures of some of the hottest men of all time. And then there's a link. It's just so funny. I'm obsessed with this day. It's better than like, I don't know. Cooked fruit day. Cooked fruit day. By the yeah. way, the, the hottest men of all time goes to a uh, Harper's Bazaar article for the 50 hottest men of all time. And the picture that comes up is James Dean. Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling, and Idris Elba. I can agree with those. With James Dean being number one. 
I can I uh, prove that. No, I don't know. I have strange. Well, there taste. you go. <laughs> well, feast your eyes on some some hot men, especially if one of them's a ginger. I am really winning here. You know, this is this is my kind of day. I'm really obsessed with January twelfth. But yeah, it's great. Like Jack's sexual hedonistic day. Yeah, this is Jack's hedonism day. day. Yeah. I wish this was my birthday. All right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. Today, we're going to continue with part two of our Gainesville Ripper story. And at the end of our last episode, we left off with some shocking news that a man suspected of being the Gainesville Ripper had been identified and arrested. So far, the perpetrator was suspected of killing five college students over the course of four days, Sonia Larson, Christy Powell, Krista Hoyt, Tracy Pauls, and Manny Taboda. The town of Gainesville was waiting on pins and needles. Who was this man that police had in custody? Would the families of these victims get the justice they so desperately wanted? And would the murders in the small town finally stop? Only time would tell. And for now, let's start with how the suspect popped up on the police radar in the first place. On August 30th of 1990, four days after the first victims were found in the apartment of our first-degree Sonia, police arrested 18-year-old Edward Lewis Humphrey for the assault of his grandmother. And here's what happened. In the early morning hours, he had gone to his 79-year-old grandmother Elna's house, pulled her out of her chair, and punched her repeatedly in the face while screaming, quote, you're going to hell and you're going to die. This whole thing is extremely unnerving, but was this enough to make police think that he was the Gainesville Ripper? Well, it turns out, no. When officers canvassed neighborhoods for information on who the Gainesville Ripper could be, Edward's name came up on more than one occasion. So much so that police started surveilling him on August 28th. Well, it's really not a great look if several people in a town are all pointing to you as a potential serial killer. So what are they basing all this on? Why did they think it was him? Edward was an 18-year-old student at the University of Florida, first year, and he'd been living in Gainesville over the summer. He actually had been living in the Gatorwood Apartments, which is the very same complex where Manny and Tracy were murdered, but he'd been recently evicted. So he was a really good suspect. Being a student, he could blend it in the background, in and around the student housing where his victims lived. He was over six feet tall, 200 pounds, meaning that he could have easily overpowered the victims, including Manny. And the cherry on top, he loved knives, and he was off his medication, which was used to treat self-destructing mood swings. Well, it turns out that Edward hadn't always suffered from these destructive mood swings, we'll call them. In fact, he'd once been an honor student with a lot of drive. But everything changed in 1998, when 16-year-old Edward was in a very bad car accident. He was thrown from the car and suffered a serious head injury. So following this traumatic accident, Edward was not ever the same. Gone was the overachieving honor student, and its place was a violent and unpredictable man. In two years following the accident, police had actually been called to Edward's grandmother's house a total of 22 times. At least 14 of those calls were about Edward physically and verbally attacking his grandmother. So we're looking at a picture of Edward now, and it's a black and white photo, so it's hard to know too much. 
He honestly, he looks sort of scary because he's got like a dead look in his eyes and his face yeah. all scratched up. But other than that, he sort of looks like a Ken doll. <laughs> yeah, he just looks kind of like a normal, attractive teenage kid that might have just gotten a f- in a fight or, or something like accident. that. Or like fell off his bike. Yeah. His hair is all tousled, but he looks very contemporary. You know, it's it's just the look in his eye. I could see it, he, he looks like something's wrong there. Right. Yeah. So putting ourselves in Edward's head, when the cops were called for the August 30th assault on his grandmother, he probably thought it would be the previous 14 times that he had assaulted her. But oh no, this time it was different. Because unlike all the times before, this time Edward was arrested, he was taken to the police station and questioned, but it was not about the assault. The police wanted to talk to Edward about the Gainesville Ripper murders. And they made sure to tell the media a suspect in the murders had been identified and apprehended. So could this seemingly erratic 18-year-old teen really be the diabolical, cunning, dismembering Gainesville Ripper? We asked our first-degree Sonia what she was thinking when she heard police had arrested a suspect in the murder. I didn't think it was him. I think because what I had read about him, he didn't sound very sophisticated, and it sounded to me like... The person that did all this, maybe because they said he had surgical skills or something, and Ed Humphreys was just like a kid, you know, a young kid that that didn't seem like he had much life experience. Well, unlike Sonia, police were convinced they had their guy. They searched Edward's car and his property, combed through his entire life, and compared his fingerprints and DNA to those found at the crime scene. And here's what they found. Nothing. The police couldn't find a shred of evidence tying Edward to any of the murders or crime scenes. But the police weren't giving up yet. They were desperate and clung to the idea that maybe, just maybe, despite the lack of evidence, Edward was still the Gainesville Ripper. So why would they think this? Well, the killings had suddenly stopped right when Edward was arrested. So that had to mean something, right? But there wasn't enough evidence to charge Edward with the murders, so to buy time, authorities instead held him on a $1 million bond for the assault on his grandmother. And let's be honest here. If Edward hadn't been the prime suspect in these murders, he would have never been held on a million-dollar bond for just assault. In fact, before police decided that Edward was the killer, his bond was set to 10250 bucks. But none of this mattered because police needed to make the public feel safe by having a quote-unquote suspect behind bars. Yeah, this seems sort of sketchy. I mean, his civil rights are kind of being violated, I mean, I think. Absolutely, yeah. In the end, Edward was never charged with the Gainesville Ripper murders. However, he was convicted of felony assault, even though his grandmother asked for the charges to be dropped. And he was sentenced to 22 months in prison and released after 14 months. And just like he wouldn't have been held on such a high bond if he hadn't been the number one suspect in the Ripper murders, really, Edward most likely wouldn't have been convicted of a felony or been given such a lengthy sentence. Here's Edward talking to ABC News about what it felt like to be a suspect for the Gainesville Ripper murders. There's a point where I pretty much wrote my life off, you know? Really? Yeah. What point was that? I said, man, I'm really, I'm really... in trouble this time when I saw 200 reporters in that little room all taking snapshots of me. What did the media do to you? Just the way they portrayed me, the pictures they showed. I don't think I'm a monster, you know. I'm, I'm a human being just like they are. It's clear that police desperately wanted Edward Humphrey to be the Gainesville Ripper. But the fact of the matter is, Edward wasn't their guy. Even more sad, 
Edward's grandmother died while he was behind bars waiting to find out if he was going to be charged with the Ripper crimes, and she never learned his fate. Edward served his sentence for the assault and got back on his medication. And believe it or not, he actually was able to start college like he had planned to in the fall of 1990. And this was before he became the most hated man in Gainesville. And he kept turning things around. In 2000, he graduated magnum cum laude with a Bachelor's of Science in Business Administration. And while he hasn't spoken with the media since, it's been reported that Edward went on to marry, have a daughter, and settle three hours southeast of Gainesville in Palm Bay. And WUFT reached out to Edward in 2020, hopefully to tell his side of the story for the 30th anniversary of the Ripper murders. And Edward told them that he didn't want to give an interview. But he did add, quote, I'm happy it's over. I'm happy I always have the support of family and friends, and I'm happy with my family now. Now back to the fall of 1990. After months of Edward not being charged with the murders, Gainesville residents knew this wasn't the guy, this wasn't the Ripper. And that meant the real Ripper was out there somewhere, and it also meant that he could strike at any moment. The town was right back where they started, frozen in fear, questioning if the real Ripper would ever be identified. Now, First Degree Sonia gave us some insight into the trauma she and other Gainesville residents faced during that time. I think have made me look back at this time and and more aware of of how traumatic it really was and and how nobody really talked about it or I can't say nobody talked about it but nobody in my school talked very much about it we talked about the killer and wanting him to be found and wanting some resolution but we didn't we didn't talk very much about you know how it had affected us and how it took away a lot of, I'm sure, freshmen more so than, you know, med school. We had the college experience, but still, it, it, I was really excited to be in Gainesville. I thought it was so cute and I was very positive about the future. And I think, I think it took, it took that away <laughs> one fell swoop, which is a shame. While residents were wondering if police were ever going to make a legitimate arrest, no one knew that the real Ripper was already in custody and had been arrested just 30 miles south of Gainesville. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough. And it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay, when the truth is, 
I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. After Edward Humphrey was cleared as the number one suspect in the Gainesville Ripper murders, police were forced to go back to the drawing board. Gainesville police and the Alachua County Sheriff's Office were spread so thin that they called in agents from all over Florida to help them. Around 100 investigators were working on the case, 16 of which were trained in making psychological profiles. Some had even worked on the Ted Bundy case. And this task force focused on the similarities between all five murders. Remember, the tape residue the soap residue, the sexual assaults, the stab wounds, and the posing of the bodies. They also noticed that the killer entered the residences through the back door, and each home was near a wooded area, which allowed the killer to get in and out without being noticed. Also, all of the victims looked very similar. They were petite brunettes, aside from Manny. In September and October, police were focusing their investigation on Edward Humphrey, and we know how that turned out. Then in November, authorities caught a major break. Don Maines, an investigator with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, went to Shreveport, Louisiana, and met with police who had heard about the Gainesville murders and thought that they were eerily similar to one of their unsolved cases, the November 1989 murders of the Grissom family. So who is the Grissom family? So William Thomas Tom Grissom was 55 years old, and in 1989, Tom, an Army veteran, was an AT&T supervisor living on Beth Lane in Shreveport. He was an easygoing and helpful supervisor who would do anything for his employees, and his neighbors found him to be a wonderful addition to the neighborhood. Sadly, Tom had been battling throat cancer for years, but he was finally doing better. He was looking forward to retiring soon. Tom and his ex-wife Joyce had a son named Scott and a daughter named Julie together, and Julie lived with Tom and helped take care of him while he went through his cancer treatment. Tom's daughter, Julianne Grissom, was 24 years old. In 1989, the nice, sweet Julie was finishing up her marketing degree at Louisiana State University of Shreveport. She also worked part-time at Dillard's as an account representative for Liz Claiborne. Julie and her fiancé, an attorney named Hal Carter, had recently decided to take a break. They wanted to see if marriage at such a young age was the right choice for them. Okay, so they remember that Tom had a son named Scott too, and he 
ended up getting married. He had a wife and they had their own son in 1981. And their little boy's name was Sean. So Sean is the grandson of Tom. So in 1989, he was a third grader in elementary school. And this brings us to November of 1989, when Scott dropped Sean off for a weekend visit with his grandpa, Tom, and Aunt Julie. So Sean's mom, Jenny, tried calling on Saturday evening to make sure everything was okay. But she didn't get an answer. So it wasn't a big deal. Jenny knew that Tom had plans to barbecue in the backyard. But then Jenny called again on Sunday, and still no answer. She was still not alarmed. She figured everything was fine because she had no reason to think otherwise. But then Sean wasn't dropped off at school on Monday morning. And when Jenny and Scott found this out, they knew something was wrong, and they called police in a total panic. At around 8.45 a.m., in the presence of police, three neighbors went inside Tom's house. They opened the door to the utility room of the garage, and they saw a body. Jenny was right. Something was wrong. Very wrong. Police found 55-year-old Tom's body slumped against the utility room door. He had been stabbed multiple times in the back and chest. As officers made their way through the rest of the house, they stumbled upon the unimaginable. Eight-year-old Sean was face down in the family room. He'd been watching TV when he was stabbed in the back so forcefully that the knife blade exited through his chest. In a bedroom, police found 24-year-old Julie's naked body, partially hanging off the bed. She'd been raped, then stabbed at least three times in the back but her body was left face up. Vinegar had been used to clean her, and tape residue was located on her body. There were no signs of forced entry, ransacking, or robbery at the home. There was some indication of a struggle, but it wasn't that noticeable. Police theorized that the Grissom family had been killed in a surprise attack between 6 and 8 p.m. on Saturday, November 4th. So while the Shreveport community was very, very freaked out by this gruesome slaughter of this family, the police focused their attention on Julie's ex-fiance, Hal. The only issue was that Hal had actually been in Atlanta when the murders occurred. But that didn't matter. Until they had someone better, Hal would just have to be their number one suspect. And he was. So obviously we're seeing a lot of similarities between the murders in Gainesville and in this murder. The, the differences are that you have a, a family this time, but if you just think that she was the target, Julie was the target, everything from the tape residue to the cleaning to the stabbing from behind, there was so much of it that looked like, that that are similar. This doesn't happen all the time like that, particularly the stabbing from behind. Uh, This is obviously, this is this this person's MO. He rapes the woman and then has them turn around and then then stabs him from behind. And we see, obviously, with Manny, too, if the, he's after the woman, he's willing. Everybody else is collateral damage for him. He probably right. hyper focuses. Absolutely. So when Don Maines, the detective from Florida who is investigating the Ripper cases, learned about the Grissom murders, he couldn't help to notice the similarities, like Billy was telling us about, and he was convinced that the same person was responsible for both of these sets of murders. He went back to Florida and got to work on his lead. Detective Maines' first order of business was some DNA testing. He found that the semen left behind at all three Gainesville crime scenes was contained type B blood. And the semen from the Grissom scene, well, it was also type B. Well, it's not exactly a smoking gun, but it's not nothing. Not nothing. Then something every investigator hopes for happened. 
Detective Maines caught another major break. And this one would actually lead police straight to the real Gainesville Ripper. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Florida Detective Don Maines had recently traveled to Shreveport to discuss the 1989 unsolved murders of the Grissom family. The similarities between the Grissom case and the Gainesville Ripper cases were clear. Maines was convinced that the same person was responsible for both sets of murders, and semen tested from both cases contained type B blood. But the next break would come in the form of a tip that was called into the Gainesville PD. The tipster was Shreveport resident Cindy Juracich. Cindy said that a few months prior, she'd been on a trip through the Florida panhandle when she saw a news report about the Gainesville Ripper. The report instantly made her think of someone she knew in Shreveport, a guy named Danny Rawling. Well, why? Cindy told police that Danny had spent some time with her and her family in the past. And a few months after the Grissom murders, Danny told her then-husband Stephen that he had a little problem. And when Stephen asked what kind of problem, Danny replied, I like to stick knives into people. That is a very chilling response. That is so, so terrifying. So who is this Danny Rawling guy? And where was he from? And was this guy actually capable of committing such gruesome evil acts? Well, you know the drill. We've got to go back to the beginning. Danny Harold Rawling was born on May 26, 1954 in Shreveport, Louisiana, to parents James and Claudia. And from the day he was born, Danny apparently faced mental and physical abuse at the hands of his father, James. And later, when Claudia gave birth to another son named Kevin, James abused him also. And apparently the driving force behind this abuse was the fact that James did not want children and would get angry with Claudia when she got pregnant. So James didn't hold his kids and he would get mad at his wife if she tried to mother them. So if either son tried to show affection towards their dad, he would then beat them. And if either son sat on the living room couch, James would beat them. If they didn't have proper table manners, dining etiquette, you name it, James would beat them. So by the time Danny was around five, things were so bad that Claudia was feeding her two sons behind her husband's back. This continued until they were old enough to move out. Claudia had tried to leave her husband James multiple times, but she was never able to permanently escape his grasp. And, you know, I don't have this as proof, but if he's doing that to the boys, he's probably doing that to her as well. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. So to make matters worse, and this is insane, James was a cop. This abusive dick was a lieutenant with the local police force, meaning that even if Claudia wanted to turn in her husband for abuse, it's pretty unlikely that anything would have even been done. In fact, one time there was an incident between James and their neighbors, and this uh, family was called the Holders. He beat up the Holder's son, then pulled out a gun and threatened the entire family. Claudia and the mother, Bernadine Holder, went to report James to the police, but they just refused to do anything because it could have hurt James's career. So, yeah, turning James into the police wasn't really an option for Claudia. Apparently, the abuse took a real toll on Danny. And by the third grade, teachers said he was, quote, suffering from an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies and poor impulse control. Then when Danny was 11, Claudia attempted to die by suicide. Danny coped with his mother's near death with drugs and alcohol. At 14, Danny was caught peeping into a female neighbor's room. When his father, James, found out what his son did, he responded in true James fashion, and he beat up his son. By the 10th grade, Danny had dropped out of high school and joined the Air Force. But after two years, he was dishonorably discharged for drug possession. With the military not working out, Danny decided to attempt the American dream. He was going to get himself a wife, some kids, and a good job and settle down. At 20, he married Omather Loomis, and they had a daughter together. But the American dream just wasn't in the cards for Danny. Unfortunately, as is often the case, he continued the cycle of abuse his dad had inflicted upon him. In 1977, after three years of marriage, Danny pulled a gun on O'Mather and threatened to kill her. It was the last straw, and she filed for divorce. After the divorce, many people noticed Danny's behavior change, and not in a good way. He seemed to harbor a deep hatred for women, especially petite brunettes who looked like O'Mather. By 1979, Danny had completely given up on his ability to build a traditional family or have a normal job. After robbing a Winn-Dixie store, Danny was sentenced to three years in prison. And he didn't learn his lesson because in July of 1985, Danny robbed a Kroger and then went on the run. After spending a few hours hiding in the woods, Danny broke into a house and stole a car. The next day, he was pulled over and arrested. He was sentenced to four years for armed robbery and grand theft auto. And in 1988, Danny was paroled after serving three years. He moved back to his parents' place in Shreveport. And we are looking at a picture of Danny right now. Um, he has very, very slopy eyes and a very receding hairline would be the two things that I noticed first. What do you notice, Alexis? If I... I'm experiencing if I'm experiencing him in real life, it, he looks like the face he's making. It looks like if I hurt my accountant's feelings, <laughs> or it looks like I've I've hurt like a banker's feelings. He's like this very meek looking look on his face. Everything is every his mouth is kind of downturned. His mm -hmm. eyes are downturned. He has these like wrinkles that are all. It's very downturned and like sad, pouty, and pouty. Not a strong jaw. No, and it looks like he, chin. he did have an ear piercing and maybe it closed up. <laughs> I think that's a scar. Oh, okay. <laughs> and again, the the hairline is is not great. We'll show we'll share this on Instagram so you guys can take a look. 
In May of 1990, three months before the first bodies were found in Gainesville, Danny was still living with his parents. And as a reminder, he hated his parents, especially his dad. On the evening of May 18th, Danny was at home with them when he and his father got into an argument over something really stupid. James told Danny to roll up his car windows because it was starting to rain. Instead of just going outside and rolling up the windows, Danny stormed out of the house. So James followed with a gun and fired three to four shots in his son's direction, which is completely reasonable. So James then went back into the house with Danny following closely behind. James was standing in the doorway to the kitchen when Danny kicked the door in and yelled, old man, you want to shoot it out? Wow, fighting words. Claudia ran out of the room. Then she heard gunshots. When she went into the kitchen, she found James lying on the floor with a gunshot wound to the head and one to his side. Danny was long gone. He had left the house. It was around 8.45 p.m. when police showed up and James was taken to the hospital. He actually survived his wounds, but lost sight in one of his eyes. This is incredibly intense to see this stuff happening in a family. And there are a lot of parallels between him and Ed Kemper in the relationship Mm -hmm. with his mother. Like, he ultimately killed her. You know what I mean? So it's like he was trying to kill his father here and just didn't. But I think, yeah, obviously there's such a strong correlation between their parents and their how they ended up. So despite the fact that James had been an abusive father to his sons for their entire lives, a manhunt for Danny ensued because you're not allowed to just shoot people, even abusive assholes. And Danny was facing charges of attempted murder and a warrant was issued for his arrest. The following day, Danny's car was found abandoned in a Motel 6 parking lot in Shreveport. When police went to check in the hotel, they found out that Danny just never checked in at all. He just used it as a place to dump his car. And police had no idea, but Danny hopped on a Greyhound bus to Florida. Once he got there, he started living in a tent in the woods. The location of this tent would prove to be extremely crucial later. So let's fast forward to November now. And remember, Cindy finally calls the police and gives them the name of Danny Rawling. Detective Maines looks into Danny and finds out that his parents actually lived just 10 minutes away from the Grissom house. So he was looking like a good suspect. He looked at his rap sheet. One of the things that he noticed was he had multiple convictions for armed robbery. So if Danny really was the Ripper, then he could also be responsible for one of those unsolved bank robberies that happened in Gainesville, which happened the very same day that Krista Hoyt's body was found. Here's what happened on August 27th. A man with a gun went to the First Union National Bank of Gainesville. He told a teller to give him all their money. The teller followed directions, but made sure to slip a red dye pack into the bag of $7,000 cash before handing it over. This guy was able to get away with the money. And we've all seen these dye packs in movies. You know, someone robs a bank, and as they're getting away, they look in the bag, and then splat, they're just like completely covered in dye. But do you guys actually know how they work? Because I didn't, and it's actually really, really fascinating. Yeah, well, why don't you digress for an educational moment? Because I actually don't know how they work. I love an educational moment. So according to How Stuff Works, the dye pack is more than just a pack of dye. It's actually a device that tellers keep near their station. And the packs are attached to a special magnetic plate that keeps them in quote-unquote safe mode. So if a teller is robbed, they'll remove the pack from their magnetic plate and try to slip it into the stack of real money without the robber noticing what they're doing. That stack of real bills is then put into the bag of money. 
So as the robber leaves the bank, a radio transmitter near the entrance activates a small radio receiver inside the die pack. Once that's activated, a timer starts counting down, and it's usually set for more than 10 seconds so that the robber is in his getaway car or he's running from the bank by the time that the pack actually explodes. When the pack does explode, an aerosol of red smoke, red dye, and sometimes tear gas is released. And because of these chemical reactions, the dye pack starts burning, and this is at a temperature of around 400 degrees. And this is so the robber doesn't try to reach in the bag and actually take the pack out. So once the dye pack goes off, the money is useless and the robber is usually covered in this crazy dye, which makes identifying them obviously extremely easy. What a educational moment. Let's yes. build Who these knew? Often. Who what a, what, knew? What complex technology. I know. I kind of I like doing these digressions. I know. Maybe this once is <laughs> I know. We have to. So the day after this bank robbery at around 1 a.m., an officer saw a man enter a wooded area located across the street from the bank that was robbed. So he calls for backup, and they all go into the woods, and they find the man. When they were within shouting distance, the police announced their presence, and the man ran deeper into the woods, and a chase ensued, but he was able to get away. But later, they brought in the dogs, and the canine tracking unit led police to a makeshift campsite. It's a very sad campsite. This is not like the glamping of my no, dream. No it's like going on here. it's like a it's like a camp from a cartoon where it's like two sticks and a, yeah. a blanket. Like it's it's hardly a tent. It looks like it's made from trash bags. <laughs> yeah, it does. Like the the tiny ones that you use in like a little apartment. Yeah, trash can. Totally. And there's a weird little bag of his creepy items there, which I'm not into. Doesn't look comfortable. No. So as they approached the site, the officers saw a raincoat and red dye-stained money on the ground. So they're finding this close to this creepy little campsite. So knowing that the bank across the street had been robbed by a white-armed male, police decided to secure the tent just to be safe. Maybe this was a scene. A search dog went in the tent and came out, and then an officer lifted the flaps to make sure no one was inside. So while doing that, the officer saw a tote bag sitting on top of more red-stained money. And I think that's this creepy little satchel I'm looking at in this picture. So worried that the man they chased had gone back to the tent to get a gun, the officer searched the tote bag for a weapon. Inside, he found a screwdriver. He found duct tape and a dark ski mask. They also found a cassette player with a tape and a gun box. And inside of it, there was a gun. The officer then called for a crime scene unit to come analyze the scene. Investigators collected many pieces of evidence from this campsite, but because a gun was found instead of a knife, no one really thought this campsite had anything to do with the Gainesville Ripper case. All of the items were logged into evidence for the bank robbery case, and no connections were made otherwise, at least not yet. Now Detective Maines has a theory that maybe Danny was responsible for that bank robbery on August 27th. So investigators go back to that evidence locker to look at the things that were taken from the campsite. Because remember, there's months uh, in between this from when they found the campsite and when Detective Maines is thinking maybe this guy could be responsible for the Ripper murders. So they find the gun, they find a screwdriver, they find a bag of money, and they find the never-before-listened-to cassette tape. Apparently no investigator had ever listened to the tape before. So they pop in the tape and play it to see if there was anything useful on there. And boy, was there. 
Yeah, and let's talk about how not listening to this tape is pretty negligent and lazy. The fact that the person in charge of solving that bank robbery where they initial found it, like, that seems like a useful thing. But And, like, even if, I mean, aren't you curious aren't to you see curious? what is on any cassette yeah. tape that you find? <laughs> Maybe it's a mixtape. <laughs> Honestly, you find a cassette tape, but walking around in 1990, if you find a cassette tape on the street, you're taking it home and listening to it, no matter what it is. Hell yeah. It could be, like, a love songs from... A- Star-crossed lovers, like that's a gift. Yeah, it is a gift. Again, this in- a gift. incredibly lazy that they didn't listen to it. Insane. But ultimately, it was listened to. And when the officers pressed play on the 58-minute-long tape, they first heard a man say, "I'm sending this to the three people I love the most, and I'll always love you. I love my mother, I love my father, and I love my brother. And no matter what anybody thinks about this man, Danny Harold Rowling." I want these three people that I'm talking to right now to know that this is not the road I really wanted. This is not what I wanted, but it is the road that is before me now, and I will walk it like a man. So investigators continued listening to the tape, hoping for more information, and they got some. Danny apologized to each of his family members at length. To his father, he said, quote, you know I love you, Pop. I'm so sorry, Dad. It rips my heart out by the roots to think of what happened between you and I. And he also told his dad some other things. To his mother, Danny said, quote, Mom, don't blame yourself for anything that's happened. None of it is your fault. What I'm trying to say is after this tape, you're not going to hear anything else from me. And to his younger brother, Kevin, Danny said, I wanted so much for you and I to strike out together and make a dent in this world and make something out of our lives. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? No, this world is corrupt, and so is the system that rose it up. And that system is the system of the devil. I'm not going to deliver myself into the hands of men to be tormented by them, by men that are even lesser than myself. No, I'll go to my grave first. And then... Danny went on to play guitar while singing 11 original songs. A serial killer who wants to be a rock star. How original. (laughs) How original. And it just so happens we have a clip of one of these masterpieces right here in handy. So the tape ended with a brief message recorded late on August 23rd of 1990. In the recording, Danny gave Kevin some advice about how to kill a deer. And it's eerie to hear considering how the Gainesville Ripper victims were killed. He said, quote, aim for the lungs straight through the rib cage, either there or the heart. But the best thing to do is hit the lungs. It's the best shot for for a deer straight through the lungs. He don't go very far. Danny then closed out this tape with a message to his dad, but this message had a much different tone than the one Danny recorded on August 4th. He said, you know, Pop, I don't think you was ever really concerned about the way I felt anyway. Nope, I really don't. You never would take time to listen to me, never cared about what I thought or felt. I never had a daddy that I could go to and confide in with my problems. You just pushed me away at a young age, Pop. I guess you and I, we both missed out on a lot. I wanted to make you proud of me. I let you down. I'm sorry for that. Well, I'm going to sign off for a little bit. I got something I got to do. I love you. Bye. And that's something he had to go do. He had to go brutally attack Sonia Larson and Christy Powell in their Gainesville apartment. 
the same apartment our first degree Sonia lived in. So this is unbelievable. So many agencies were trying to find this guy, and the answer had been on a cassette tape in an evidence locker the whole time. If only officers had listened to that tape back in August, they possibly could have caught Danny easier and sooner than this. They might not have been able to save any lives at that point, but they could have saved the town of Gainesville from that horror that they were living in every day. So now police have a name. They got to track him down. They didn't have to go far. If you recall from the beginning of the episode, he had been arrested on September 7th after he robbed the Winn-Dixie in Ocala. But what had Danny been up to between the bank robbery on August 27th and September 7th? It turns out that after running away from police on August 27th, he stole a car and drove to Tampa. On September 2nd, he robbed a save and pack grocery store using a gun. After holding up three cashiers, he took off with $3,000 in cash. Danny stayed in Tampa for a few more days, stealing another car and burglarizing three apartments, during which he would leave a banana peel on a chair as a calling card. I guess everyone wants some sort of a nickname. How did he change from, I'm going to leave bananas on the chair, to what he ultimately did? Like, that seems a pretty sharp escalation. Shocking. We're going to learn a lot more about this guy, so... I don't know if we'll get answers, but we're going to learn a lot more. (laughs) Not about the banana. So luckily for officers, Danny was captured on September 7th after he robbed the Winn-Dixie. Once Detective Maines found Danny, he obtained a sample of his blood and found that Danny was type B. And this was the same as the suspect in the Ripper and Grissom family murders. And they were convinced that they now had their man, the real Gainesville Ripper, and not just some guy who seemed like a good fit. On November 15, 1991, an Alachua County grand jury indicted Danny with the first-degree murders of Sonia Larson, Christy Powell, Krista Hoyt, Manuel Taboda, and Tracy Pauls. He was also charged with three counts of sexual battery and three counts of armed burglary of a dwelling with battery. We asked our first-degree Sonia what she and the rest of Gainesville felt about this news. Danny Rowling, we were just really relieved. I think we everyone was really surprised that he was who he was. I don't remember being anything but but relieved that they had identified him and, and I wasn't so sure that it was him, you know? Because because when it started to come out that they had arrested him for something else and then kind of tied him back to this, it kind of felt like maybe they were just doing that to close the case, make people feel better. You know what I mean? It was kind of hard to believe that that was really, that they, he had just been sitting in jail for months. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, it was him. It just felt a little unreal. Residents of Gainville were understandably cautiously optimistic about the arrest of Danny Rawling. How could they be sure the real Ripper was finally behind bars, especially after what had happened to their first suspect, Ed Humphrey? If Rawling was the right guy, would he ever confess? And if he did confess, would the town ever be able to get past the terror of knowing what Danny Rawling did to those five college students? If you think the stranger-than-fiction happenings and bizarre reveals connected to this case are over, you're very, very wrong. Because once Danny Rawling was behind bars, the spectacle that followed was one impossible to believe. All of this and more next week in Part 3.
A huge thank you to Sonia for being our first degree guest last week, this week, and also next week. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar. We are talking true crime all of the time. And stick around tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Happy Jack sexual heating day. <laughs> ginger kissing, men observing. Go kiss a hot ginger. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, writing by Haley Gray, producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Sources for this episode are E-Online, The Sun Sentinel, Oxygen, WUFT, Tampa Bay, Washington Post, The Sarasota Herald Tribune, The Orlando Sentinel, The Odessa American, The Palm Beach Post, The Shreveport Journal, The Tallahassee Democrat, and as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.